0: The words to which I should like to call your attention this evening are to be found in the book of the prophet Isaiah, in the first chapter and the fourth verse. The fourth verse in the first chapter of the book of the prophet Isaiah. Ah, sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity, a seed of evil doers. Children that are corruptors. They have forsaken the Lord. They have provoked the Holy One of Israel to anger. They have gone away backward. Ah, sinful nation. The people laden with iniquity. A seed of evil doers, Children that are corruptors. They have forsaken the Lord. They have provoked the Holy One of Israel unto anger. They are gone away backward. Now, those who attend here regularly will know that we are studying at this present time this message of the book of the prophet Isaiah, and in particular his introduction of his theme and of his matter as he presents it to us here at the very beginning of this first chapter. I would remind you that he wrote to these people at all because they were in trouble and were in difficulties. None of the prophets would ever have appeared or ever have written if everything had been going well. It was because things were going badly, going wrong, that the prophets ever were called upon by God to address the nation at all. So it is the message of God through the prophet to the nation of Israel in trouble and in difficulty and in perplexity. But it's important and vital that we should realize always that these particular and special messages to the nation of Israel are in a sense God's message to the whole world. God made the whole world, made man for himself. So as he addresses this particular message, We have, as it were, the message that he addresses to the whole world of men, to the whole of humanity. The principles are the same. There are particular applications, but I'm not concerned about them at the moment. I'm concerned about the great principles which are enunciated in the message that was given by God to the prophet in this way and manner. And it's, of course, exactly the same message as was given uh, to all the other prophets. What is it? Well, it comes to this. The prophet has got two big things to say. The first is, he tells the people the cause of their troubles. That's the starting point always. You can't treat a condition unless you know what it is. Now the world is always interested in cures, but you can't get it that way. You've got to know what's wrong with them. So all the prophets start by A great message of exposure of the trouble, exposure of the ill. And it is only after they've done that, that they come to the second aspect of their message, which is their enunciation of the only, the one and only remedy, the one and only cure. Now that's exactly what Isaiah's got to say, what they've all got to say. That's what the New Testament preachers say. There are only two sides to the message of the Bible. It is primarily a call to repentance. And then it is a call to faith. The Apostle Paul, you remember in bidding farewell to the elders of the church at Ephesus, there on the seashore, reminded them how he had gone from house to house and in public and he preached what? The repentance that is toward God and the faith that is toward the Lord Jesus Christ. That's it. And that's what you've got here. It's everywhere. Now, I am arguing therefore that this is precisely Their message of God and his word this very night to this world in which we live. The world's in trouble. The whole world is in trouble. And individuals are all in trouble. And the first thing we have to realize is what's the matter? What's the cause of the trouble? Now the Bible insists upon our facing this. We've got to follow its teaching, therefore, as it unfolds to us and unmasks before us our actual state and condition and the cause of it. And so, you see, Isaiah immediately proceeds to do that. First of all, he gives us an account of what we may call the general characteristics of this thing that causes all our troubles, which the Bible calls sin. And sin, he has told us in its essence in verse 2, is a wrong relationship to God. I have nourished and brought up children and they have rebelled against me. That's the first cause of all our troubles. If man had never originally broken that relationship between himself and God, there would never have been trouble in the world. That is sin, the essence of it. Rebellion against God. But he doesn't leave it at that. So he goes on, as we saw last Sunday night in the third verse, to show us some further characteristics of this rebellion. Why does men ever rebel? Why does he do this? And there you remember he told us, it's because of the blindness of men. Sin makes a man blind. Can't think, can't reason, doesn't consider. Makes a fool of him also. Makes a pervert of him also. And prevents his knowing what is good for him. Now, that's the point at which we've arrived. There, as it were, are the general characteristics of this condition called sin. Which is making the world what it is tonight. People have this curious notion that the gospel and its message are remote. They think that a preacher should be talking politics the whole time. What an utterly short-sighted view that is. What we are meant to do here is to show you the thing behind politics, behind all your social and economic troubles. That's the thing that matters. All these agencies are failing. Why? Well, because they're all being handled by men who are sinners. Sin is the cause of the trouble. You can't put this world right by politics or by any other arrangement you may think of. There's only one basic trouble. It is sin. And there are the general characteristics of sin. This is the explanation of why the world is divided into two great camps tonight and why they're piling up armaments and why we are faced with dread and unthinkable possibilities. That's the trouble with the world. It's only here you get a radical diagnosis. You don't get it in your newspapers. You don't get it anywhere else. Here and here alone is the radical explanation. Very well. But you see, the prophet doesn't stop at that. He goes on. And we've got to follow him. If you want to be healed, my friend, in a spiritual sense, in other words, if you really want to get right, if you want to master life and want a victory in your own life, if you want to be able to look into the face of death without fear, well then listen, I say, for your very life. Follow this man. He's given us the general characteristics of sin. Let's follow him as he leads us on to see Some of the things that this condition leads to now in action, in practice, in conduct, in behavior. That's what we've got in this fourth verse that we're looking at together this evening. Now, again you notice that this element of the enormity of sin and its baseness comes out once more. And what he's going to tell us here tonight is a kind of inevitable consequence of what we've already been looking at. Are you interested in logic? Well, follow this logical process here. See how he traces it out, how one thing leads to another. This is what you may call, if you like, the anatomy of sin. It's a kind of system, it's a kind of body. So you start at the beginning and you work it out. That's exactly what the prophet is doing. You can't be in this wrong relationship to God. You can't have this wrong feeling, as it were, without it showing itself in certain ways. That's what he's going to show us. Now, it's interesting to notice the way that he introduces it to us. He puts it before us by means of the word, Ah, ah, sinful nation. What's that mean? Well, he's expressing his sense of wonder, his sense of astonishment, his sense of anger, his sense of grief, his sense of shame. He looks on at his own nation, remembering who and what they were. Israel, the people of God, the people whom God had made for himself. As God made men at the beginning, he made this nation for himself. He made men out of nothing. He made this nation, as it were, out of nothing. There was only one man, Abram. He turned him into a nation. God made this nation. It's his own. As he made men for himself. But Isaiah looks on at the nation. And what can he do but shake his head and say, Ah! What a tragedy. What a perversion, what an enormity, what a sight. We've seen already how he's called heaven and earth to witness to this. We've seen how he has even produced the ox and the ass to express their amazement. And now he expresses his own amazement. What he's saying in effect is this, is it possible that the Israel of God should come to this? And that I translate into our more general terms by putting it like this. What he's asking us to look at and to consider is this. Is it possible that man created in the image of God should be what we see in the world before us this evening? But such is the case. And if you begin to understand these things, if you've got any real conception of what man was when he came out of the hands of God and see what he is now in the depth of his evil and iniquity, there's only one thing to say and that's... Ah! Wonder and amazement, shame and grief and astonishment. What a terrible thing sin is. Now, my dear friends, let's ask ourselves a question or two as we go along. What's your reaction to the state of the world? Are you astonished at it? What's your reaction to what is going on before your eyes and is so popular and so acclaimed by men? How do you react to it? When a man has a real insight and understanding, says Isaiah, he's almost rendered speechless. What can you say? He can but hold up his hands in horror. Are we doing that? The whole business of the Bible, the whole business of preaching is to bring us to see that. We've got to see things as they are. They need to be unmasked. Our eyes must be open to them. And then we'll have this same astonishment as possessed the prophet before us. Now then, what is he astonished at? Well, I say he's astonished at the terrible character of sin and uh, he's astonished at what it does. Well, what does it do? Well, let me try and summarize the lesson of this fourth verse this evening by putting it under three headings, the three principles. Sin, he says, is that which makes a man forsake the Lord and go backwards. Sin is that which makes a man despise the Holy One of Israel. Now, let's look at this. Here it is. They have forsaken the Lord. They have provoked, despised, so as to provoke the Holy One of Israel. They are gone away backward. I wonder whether we catch something of the significance of this extraordinary statement. What sin really does is to make a man despise the almighty and everlasting and eternal God and all that belongs to him. Why is the world as it is? Well, the world... Is exactly like the prodigal son. Here was a young man, will you remember, according to our Lord's parable, who was one of two sons, brought up by his father, obviously a wonderful man, a kind and loving and considerate man, beautiful home, everything that was necessary, nothing ever denied. But you see, this younger son, he begins to think to himself that this isn't so wonderful after all, neither is his father so wonderful. And he gets tired of that way of life. He says, I'm getting out of this. He thinks there's something better in some far country. He's been hearing stories about it. Somebody's come and told him and told others some wonderful stories. If only you get there. Oh, this is nothing. You still remain a baby here. You're under your father's thumb. That's the life. That's the... And so, you see, he, he decided to leave and to go. He forsook his father. He left his home. Away he went. That's what Isaiah is telling us that children of Israel had done. That is what men did, you know, in paradise. God made him in his image and put him there in the garden. There he is in paradise. That's his home and God the Father comes down and visits them and talks to them and everything is there he had to pick the fruit. He didn't have to earn his bread by the sweat of his brow. He hadn't to contend with thorns and thistles and briars. There it was. That was the home. But what man has done, according to the Bible, and what man persists in doing, is to leave it. He forsakes his father and his home, and everything that is true of that father and everything that is true of that home. He despises it. Now this is the thing, of course, that mankind doesn't realize, but it's the thing that the Bible says from beginning to end. The carnal mind, says the apostle in Romans 8, 7, is enmity against God. Is not subject to the law of God, neither indeed can be. What is this carnal mind then? Well, it's self-will. It is forsaking God as a person and God and his laws and everything that his kind of life stands for. Oh, how necessary it is that we should realize this. You see, we are much too much in a hurry always to get on to particular sins. But sin is much more important than sins. There'd be no trouble about sins were it not for sin. The ultimate sin is a man's attitude towards God. A wrong attitude towards God. Let me put it again. Man was made in the image of God, and he was meant to glorify God, and he was meant to enjoy God. That's what he was for, and to delight in God. But what is mankind doing? Well, it's repeating what was done at the beginning. It ceased to do so. Man was ready at the beginning to query and to question and to listen to the suggestion of the devil. Hath God said what right has God to say? So, you see, the wrong attitude to God comes in. Man no longer glorifies God. He no longer enjoys God. He's forsaken God. And of course he's contradicting himself because man in sin and as the result of the fall is always so anxious to get to the highest circles, to meet the top people and to get to the very head and fountain. That's his great ambition. He's always climbing to get to know important people. And yet he's turned his back upon God. He's forsaken the Holy One of Israel. He has despised the companionship of the Lord of glory. He thinks he knows of someone better and something better. So, you see, he starts like that, with the person, with God himself. And then, of course, it proceeds to doing the same thing with God's laws and God's way of life and God's commandments. God who made us, God as our Father in that sense, obviously had planned a certain kind of life for us. And as I've reminded you, it was meant to be a very happy, a very joyous, a holy kind of life. Man man was made upright. Man was made innocent. There was no sin in him. There was no darkness, there was no evil, there was no pain, there was no sorrow, there was nothing unworthy. Man was made perfect, and he had this original righteousness, the righteousness, as it were, that is a part of God's own being. It was in man, this original righteousness, and he was meant to live that kind of life, a pure life, a holy life, no trickery, no chicanery. No backbiting, no jealousy, no envy, nothing dark, nothing hidden. Everything open, everything plain, everything pure, everything true, everything noble, everything uplifting. Man was meant to live that sort of life. And God put him into a position to live it. There's the home into which man was born, as it were, with the father in the center. But man, first of all, despises his father, and then he despises the home. And everything that is true concerning it. Instead of living as God had planned him to live, he begins to despise these things. One of his commonest jokes is about the religious life. Goody good, he calls it. Narrow. These are his terms and his epithets. The world tonight is sorry for people like you and myself in a place like this. Hot at time, is it? Look at that, he fancy doing that. It despises it, it ridicules it, laughs at it. Everything that belongs to God. You see, man begins to put his own ideas instead of God's ideas. There it is, the natural mind is enmity against God, is not subject to the law of God, neither indeed can be. God has given us the Ten Commandments, he says that's how to live. Start by honoring me and having me alone as your God. Don't take my name in vain. Don't take my day in vain. Thou shalt not kill. Thou shalt not steal. Thou shalt not commit adultery. Thou shalt not bear false witness. That's how I want you to live, says God. That's how I mean you to live. And man in sin says, what a life. What pleasure is there in living a life like that narrow. Not allowed to kill. Not perhaps actually physically. Physically. But not allowed to kill people with your mouth. Not allowed to denounce people and to indulge in backbiting. Not allowed to commit adultery. What a life. Hardly worth living. This is life. You see, they despise God and his laws and all his ways. And everything that is characteristic of the home into which men put uh, men, God put men at the beginning. Well, I say instead of accepting God and his laws and his ways and his commandments, man puts forward his own ideas, his own thoughts, his own way of life, and then he proceeds to live it. Now all I'm trying to show you, my dear friends, is that as man did that at the beginning and brought calamity upon the whole cosmos and has uh, bequeathed that to his progeny, so it is the essence of the trouble in this world at this very moment. The world is as it is tonight because mankind is still forsaking God and everything that he stands for, forsaking his ways, doing it deliberately, turning from him, forsaking him, refusing to listen, laughing at it, walking away from it, going as far as it can from it. Isn't that the whole position we are confronted by this evening? Isn't the world glorying in its attitude towards God, its wrong attitude, its base attitude? Doesn't the world think tonight that it's clever in ceasing to be religious? Doesn't every adolescent almost pass through that phase of thinking it's wonderful not to believe in God, not to believe in his laws, and that you get freedom and emancipation by so doing? Isn't that instinct in all of us? That's the result of sin, you see. We always think we know better There's always some wonderful country far away, a far country. That's the place to get to. Not this chapel business, not this religion, not this Christianity, not this God. All that that belongs to the past. There's the life. Let's get to it. So they forsake God and his holy way and his life and everything that characterizes what he's prepared. And off they go. Yes, but we are reminded here that it is always a going backwards. They're gone away backward. That's the biblical answer to evolution. The world thinks it's going forward. The world thinks it's going upwards. Never. The world, as it goes from God, goes backwards. This is of necessity true, isn't it? People talk about going up to London. Doesn't matter where you live, you go up to London. You don't go down to London. You go up to London. Why? Capital city. There's nothing above, there's nothing higher. You go up to London. And my dear friend, you go up to God, and if you turn your back on Him, you're going down, you're going backward. You go, I say, from the Supreme Being, the Creator of the ends of the earth, the Holy One of Israel. You turn your back upon Him, and you leave His home. You leave the place into which he's put you. You leave his holy laws. You leave his way of life. And you assert what? Yourself. Your opinion. And the opinion of the clever fellows who write to the newspapers and appear on the television screen. The clever men. You put them before God. That's what you've done, says Isaiah. Is it surprising? He says, ah, sinful nation. Madmen, fools. Leaving God, leaving holiness, leaving heaven, as it were. And following your own devices and ideas. Well, let's leave it at that. There's the first thing he tells us. This terrible thing called sin makes men do that. But then look at it, it's shown in this second principle even still more clearly. Look at the type of life that it leads them to after they've forsaken that. You see, life's a journey, isn't it? This process of sin, it's a journey. You leave home first, well then you go somewhere. Well, you go somewhere, as I say, because you think it's so much better, it's so much more wonderful, the prospects are so great there. Well, let's see where you arrive, let's see where they go. And here's the answer. Sinful nation, people laden with iniquity, a seed of evildoers, children that are corrupt. They have forsaken the Lord. They have provoked the Holy One of Israel into anger. They have gone away backwards. To what? Well, to that. That's where they go. That's what they become. Now, you see, what uh, the uh, prophet is putting before us is this. He's doing everything he can to open the eyes of his contemporaries. There they are in trouble, and it's going to be worse. But they can't see it. He preaches to them, others preach to them, they remonstrate with them, but still they won't listen. He says, Look, what can I do to make you see what you're doing? Look here, he says, Here's the picture. That's what you've left. Where have you gone to? What's this thing you've got? And here he paints it before them. And he uses terms which make it quite plain and clear to us that they really enjoy this which they've taken up. You notice what he says. They're a sinful nation, they're a people laden with iniquity. That means they've really gone into it thoroughly. They've gone into it thoroughly because they think it's very wonderful. They're absolutely laden. They haven't been playing with it. They haven't just touched it. They're absolutely laden with iniquity. And all these other things that are so true of them. And if this doesn't make us see the enormity and the perversity of sin, well, what can do so? If only the world saw tonight what it's doing. If the world could only see what it's really gloating in and enjoying and bursting of and then consider what it's left for the sake of that it would repent immediately. And that's what happens to every man who does repent. He comes to himself like the prodigal. He sees what a fool he is. He says, what am I doing in this far country with the husks and the swine? I, who used to be there... That's exactly what happens when a man's convicted of sin and repents and becomes a Christian. But let's follow it in terms of the way in which Isaiah puts it. Now, you see, what I'm trying to say to you is this. That until a man sees himself as he is in that far country, he'll never come back. He'll never believe the message. So you've got to see it. Here's the first thing he tells us about this life which men take up after they've forsaken God. It's a life of sin, he says. What is sin? Well, sin is defined as transgression against divine law or against principles of morality. And that's a very good definition of it. Sin is transgression against divine law. Sin is deliberately breaking God's law. Sin is doing what God has told you not to do. And doing it quite deliberately. The commandment says thou shalt not. Man says I will. And he does it. That's sin. The laws of God are perfectly plain my dear friends. There's no need to argue about this. Is there anybody here tonight who really wants to defend killing and adultery and all these things? Of course there isn't. The morality even of primitive peoples condemn such things. But over and above it all is the law of God. Yet man deliberately transgresses it. Sin is the transgression of the law. It is men looking at the law. He says, there's the law of God. Is it there are your ten commandments? Right. I'll spit on them. And then I'll stamp on them. And he does it Deliberately. And he gloats in it as he does it. Sinful nation. The next term he uses is the term iniquity. A people laden with iniquity. What's iniquity? Well, these terms, of course, are all related and they're all very similar. Iniquity means unrighteousness. It means an absence of righteousness. It means that which you become when you've ceased to keep the law. While you keep the law, you're righteous. If you break it, you become unrighteous. That's a part of iniquity. It means wickedness, if you like. It leads to gross injustice. And he says that they are literally laden with iniquity. Wicked. There is this terrible absence of righteousness. Indeed, it's, there's the opposite of that. As righteousness is good and upright, this is twisted and perverted and falls down and so on. Iniquity. Then we come to the word evil, which just means bad or wicked or mischievous. It's a terrible analysis, isn't it? Is this just a poet with a lively imagination? No, this is an exact observer. This is a newspaper reporter. This is a man who's mixed with people and who knows life, who isn't sitting in some kind of glass case and is ignorant. He says, I know life. This is what I've seen. He says, this is what is true. I see it before my eyes. This is the, these are the facts concerning you." He puts it right before them. And then he comes to his last term, which is in many ways the most terrible of all. Children that are corruptors. Now let's be clear about this. He says these men who are sinful and iniquitous and evil are also corrupters. He means by that that they corrupt themselves and that they also corrupt others. Had you realised before how up to date the first chapter of the book of Isaiah is? I'm almost beginning to think that he was in London yesterday. And read all the newspapers and watched some of the television programs. Corrupters. What's the meaning of the word corrupt? I needn't tell you. It means rotten. It means putrid. It means something that's decomposing. It means something that is depraved. It means something that is debased. It means something that is perverted. Corruption. You've seen apples going rotten. They're corrupted. Corrupt apples. Anything that becomes polluted and that festers and that begins to disintegrate and the germs come in and the smell comes out and the whole thing is a putrid mass, that's corruption. And he says that mankind... uh, that has deliberately turned its back upon God uh, to make this wonderful life and world for itself, has chosen that. That's what it's chosen, corruption. You know there's a sense in which it's almost unnecessary for me to comment, is it? The modern world is full of confidence and full of pride. Pride in its achievement. What a wonderful people we are. We mid-20th century people. How ignorant was every generation before us? How ignorant were our rude forefathers? hundred years ago, what did they know? Why, what did they know even fifty years ago? Well indeed, what did they know before the war? They hadn't split the atom. Well, they were doing it, but not in the way they're doing it now. And so on. Look at the advances. Look at our knowledge. The thing is tremendous. To ask us to believe in God and to believe in righteousness and the Ten Commandments, it's an absolute insult. We are no longer going to be bound by such childishness Religion's all right in the infancy of the human race, but not when a man becomes adult, not when he stands on his own feet, not when he uses his mind and reason and understanding. Why, this is for primitives, not for us. We know something better, and we've entered into a promised land. And what is your promised land? Corruption. Look at it round and about you. Look at the corruption of life in almost every walk and department. My dear friends, isn't it about time that we face the facts? This isn't a theoretical matter. Religion is about life and living and about facts. This is the book that's meant to help us to live in this world. And it asks us to face the facts of life. You've left God. You've left the Ten Commandments. Very well, you say you don't need them. You can plan your own life. You can live in your own way. The world is saying that tonight. What's it doing? What's it leading to? What's it got to show? I say that it's got nothing to show but this. Sin, iniquity, evil, corruption. The filth of the newspapers. The filth of the television screens. The horrible suggestion, the innuendo, the playing with sex—one of the gifts of God—the twisting and the perverting of it all, the leering and the giggling and the laughter, corruption. Marriage, laughed it. What's marriage? What's a vow? Why should a man be bound by a vow? Why should a man be bound by a pledge? Why should a man be a man of his word? What's it matter? If he suddenly is attracted, why shouldn't he? Why shouldn't he? And of course it's all so daring, so wonderful. The look, the glance, the suggestion, the wink. But oh, the corruption and the foulness. Oh, the loss of everything that is clean and pure and chaste and wholesome and ennobling and uplifting. The men and women who laugh at you for reading your Bible or for being in a service like this, that's what they've got instead of it. That's what they think is wonderful. That's the thing of which they're bursting. That's the thing which they say a man should rarely go in for, to assert himself and to express himself. Corruption. Nothing sacred, nothing pure, nothing noble. Everything a joke. Everything an object of ridicule. Everything to be turned off and to be laughed at. No sanctity, no feeling, no true emotion any longer. But cynicism, suggestion, everything doubted. They are corrupters. But still, worse, you see, is this they not only corrupt themselves, but they corrupt others. And as they do it, they delight in it and boast of it. The Apostle Paul puts this in terrifying language. At the end of the first chapter of the Epistle to the Romans, having given that awful account which he gives and which I'm tempted to read to you again, because if you think the Bible's out of date, you're making a mistake. The popular programs these days are the programs that are supposed to mirror life. That's modern art, isn't it? Modern art is meant to mirror life. We don't like artists any longer that uh, paint beautiful portraits. Ah, we say that's photographic. We don't like that. We don't like plays that did that sort of thing. We want plays now that mirror life and the programs that are most popular those that mirror life, that let us see it in the raw as it is. Oh, what tyros these fellows are. What mere amateurs they are. What beginners they are. Do you want to know life as it is in London tonight, and in this country, and in all the countries of the world? Well, I'll, I must read it to you. Because that when they knew God, they glorified him not as God, neither were thankful but became vain in their imaginations and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing themselves to be wise, they became fools and changed the glory of the uncorruptible God into an image made like to corruptible men and to birds and four-footed beasts and creeping things. Wherefore God also gave them up to uncleanness through the lusts of their own hearts to dishonor their own bodies between themselves. Who changed the truth of God into a lie and worshipped and served the creature more than the creator who is blessed forever are men. For this cause God gave them up unto vile affections. For even their women did change the natural use unto that which is against nature. And likewise also the men leaving the natural use of the woman burned in their lust one to another. Men with men working that which is unseemly and receiving in themselves the recompense of their error which was meet. And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over unto a reprobate mind to do those things which are not convenient. And here's the description. Being filled with all unrighteousness, fornication wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, full of envy, murder, debate, deceit, malignity, whisperers, backbiters, haters of God, despiteful, proud, boasters, inventors of evil things, disobedient to parents, without understanding, covenant breakers, without natural affection, implacable, unmerciful, who knowing that the judgment of God, that they which commit such things are worthy of death, not only do the same, but have pleasure in them that do them? The cheering of the silly audience, the titter and the laughter. They corrupt themselves, yes, but they're not content with it. They want to corrupt everybody else. And they're given the opportunity to do it. And they think it's clever, they think it's wonderful. They have pleasure, and they're applauded. It's marvelous. How brilliant, how clever. Oh, how corrupt, how vile, how foul, how unclean. But you see, the principle is the thing that matters, my dear friends. And the principle is this. That man, in living a life like that, thinks he's done something very wonderful. He has forsaken God. He has turned his back upon the Holy One of Israel. In order to have that, the son, the prodigal, In his father's home was dissatisfied. He left it. There he is, swine, husks, penniless, empty, hopeless. Have you seen it, my friend? Do you still think it's clever not to believe in God? Do you still think it's clever to break the Ten Commandments? Do you still think it's clever to be as unlike Jesus Christ as you possibly can be? Do you think that the modern man is really a paragon? God, open your eyes before it's too late. May the Spirit give you the wisdom to see yourself as you are. You fool! You corruptor! Awaken, I say. Open your eyes and see where your cleverness has landed you, where your forsaking of God has brought you. But I must hurry to the last principle. This is what sin does to men. But you see, the last thing is this. It leaves him in utter ignorance of and disregard of the consequences to which all this inevitably leads. Ah, sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity, a seed of evil doers, children that are corruptors. They have forsaken the Lord. They have provoked the Holy One of Israel unto anger. I wouldn't be in this pulpit were it not for this. If I hadn't understood this, I might have been a doctor or a politician or something else because I think it's the duty of every decent man to do something about the present state of morals in this country. But you see, I'm in this pulpit not because I'm interested in morals only. There's something still more terrible. Life's bad enough as it is and as men has reduced it to. But the terrible thing is this. He doesn't know what it's all going to lead to. They have provoked the Holy One of Israel and to anger, now, then, my friends, this is the great message of this book, from beginning to end. And I must put it before you as solemnly and as simply and as briefly as I can. Listen to Paul, putting it in Romans two, four and five. Here he is saying to men, do, "Do you despise the riches of God's goodness and forbearance and long-suffering?" not knowing that the goodness of God leadeth thee to repentance, but after thy hardness and impenitent heart, treasurest up unto thyself wrath against the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. What does that mean? Well, let me tell you. The one whom men in his wisdom has forsaken is the Lord. He is the Holy One of Israel. He is our Maker. He is the Judge of the whole world. And He has told us from the very beginning that there is to be a day of judgment. He is the Holy One of Israel. He hates sin. His wrath is upon sin. God wouldn't be God if He didn't hate sin. If God didn't manifest his wrath against sin, he wouldn't be God. His light and in him is no darkness at all. And he made man for himself. And he meant to enjoy him. And man has become what I've described to you. And God in heaven, he hates it. He abominates it. He's told us so. He's told us so in his messages to people like Moses. He's told it in his messages to the prophets. He has told it still more plainly in the message through his own beloved Son, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Don't listen to the foolish people who say, I don't believe in the wrath of God, I believe in the God of Jesus. What I read to you out of Luke 17 at the beginning was the words of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it is he who says, as they were in the days of Noah, eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage. Typical Saturday night. And as they were in Sodom. Oh, what were they doing? Same thing. Eating, drinking, marrying, giving in marriage, planting, buying, selling. Having a wonderful time. Business was good. Pleasure, plenty. Let's have more of it. The joys of Sodom and Gomorrah. The place that Lot chose Abram was a fool, of course. He lived on top of the mountain. Lot had an eye to business. He knew what was what. He wanted some pleasure. He wanted to do well. He chose the cities of the plain. Life of Sodom and Gomorrah. Here's life. London at its best. With all the wonderful program. As they were in the days of Lot. as they were in the days of Noah and knew not until the flood came and took them all away. That's our Lord speaking. Even so shall it be in the day of the Son of Man, my friend, as certainly as you and I are in this chapel. And I say again, I wouldn't be in this pulpit if this were not true. Every one of us is going to stand before God in the final judgment. And he has told us already that his wrath is upon sin. The day of wrath it's called. When God will show what he thinks of this kind of thing. And the punishment he's going to mete out upon it. It will be the day of the revelation of the righteous judgment of God. God is still there. And God always will be there. The world can laugh. The world has often laughed at God. The people before the flood laughed at him. The people of Sodom and Gomorrah laughed at him. The people in the time of Christ laughed at the preaching of John the Baptist, ridiculed the preaching of the Lord himself. The world has always done this. But you know the fact that the world has laughed hasn't made the slightest difference. What God has said, God has always done. And God is still there. And there's going to be an end to this world. And there is going to be a day of judgment when the righteous judgment of God against sin is going to be revealed and made plain and clear. And every man will have to stand there. Now, you can say you don't agree very well. You prove that it isn't true. If you like to risk all that merely on your opinion, my friend, I can say no more to you. I'm simply here to tell you what God has told me to tell you, and here it is. You've got to stand there, and the clever men have got to stand there. Every eye shall see him. Don't you forget that a thousand years are with the Lord as one day and one day as a thousand years. God doesn't belong to time. You say, if he's going to do it, why hasn't he done it long ago? I don't know. All I'm telling you is he's going to do it. Of that day and of that hour knoweth no man, not even the Son, but the Father only. And it's coming. And all I want to tell you is this. that if you have forsaken God and are living that sinful, iniquitous, evil, corrupt life, all I want to tell you is this, that what you're really doing is to treasure up unto yourself wrath against the day of wrath and the revelation of the righteous judgment of God. What a terrible thing. You see, what it means is this. Look at the miser. There he is. He wants to treasure up money. He doesn't spend it. He spends it. He keeps that penny. He keeps that sixpence. He keeps that shilling. He's treasuring it up. He's gathering it. He wants a great pile. Do you know what you're doing by living that kind of godless life? That life that forsakes God and puts your own opinion and your own ideas and your own way of life. Do you know what you're doing? You are treasuring up unto yourself. Wrath against the day of wrath. Everything you do is being marked into your account. Everything. You're treasuring it up. I don't believe in God. All right, that's put down. I can do this. Nobody will know. God knows it's down. You're treasuring it up. It's all being amassed. It's all being added to. And the leaves are turned. And there's no end to the book. And everything that you and I have ever done or thought or imagined, it's all there. All things are naked and open unto the eyes of him with whom we have to do. Or if you prefer it in another image that's used in the scriptures, it's this. Whatsoever a man soweth, that shall he also reap. He that soweth unto the flesh shall of the flesh reap corruption. He that soweth unto the Spirit shall of the Spirit reap life everlasting. Now this is an absolute law. It's the law of sowing and reaping. If you sow wheat, you'll grow wheat. If you sow oats, you'll grow oats. Sow potatoes, you'll grow potatoes. Sow to the flesh and you'll reap corruption. You can't help it. You can't sin without paying for it. You'll pay for it partly in this world. You'll pay for it much more in the next world. It's being treasured up. It's being accumulated. Your count is kept. And there you'll suddenly see it. And you'll be amazed at it. And what is the end of that? Well, God's righteous judgment will be revealed against that. And God's judgment of that is eternal punishment. What is this punishment? Well, it's what the Bible calls hell. It's a place of torment. It's a place of suffering. It's a place of misery. It's a place of unhappiness. It's a place of evil. It's a place of spite and malignity. Do you know what it is? I believe it's some sort of eternal filthy program. When you have realized at last that the thing is debased but you're having nothing else. You've got to live on that forever and ever. That foulness, that vileness, that suggestion, that evil, that debased desecration of everything that's righteous and like God. You'll just be festering in it. To all eternity and shut out from the glory and the purity and the holiness of the life of God and his holy angels and his saints and people. My dear friends, there have already been judgments in this world. I have reminded you of some of them. There was a judgment in the Garden of Eden. There was a judgment at the flood. There was a judgment at Sodom and Gomorrah. There was a judgment when the children of Israel were carried into the captivity of Babylon. There was a judgment in A.D. 70 when the nation of Israel was ruined. The very city brought to the rubble, to the dust, and the nation cast out amongst the people's. There have been judgments in this century. I believe the two world wars we've already had are nothing but the judgments of God upon the arrogance and the pride of men. since the middle of the 19th century. We've already had judgments. And there's another terrible one threatening us in the form of bombs. But these... A mere prophecies and adumbrations of the final judgment that is to come. My dear friend, what I'm trying to tell you is this. That if you are living the kind of life I've been depicting, you are treasuring up unto yourself wrath against the day of wrath and the manifestation of the righteous judgment of God. You are provoking the Holy One of Israel to anger. You are putting God against you. And that is the terrible and the horrible thing about sin. You're making an enemy of God. The one who made you. The one who made you for himself and who wanted to be your father and who wanted to shower his blessings upon you as I was telling you last Sunday night. You have turned him into an enemy. You make him angry with you. And you'll make him punish you. And his wrath will come upon you. Can't you see it? Can't you see it? Look at what you're left. Look at what you've got. Look where you are. What is this life of yours? What's in it? What's it leading to? What's it giving you? What's it going to end in? The amazing thing to me is that God still speaks to us, but he does. Though the nation of Israel was like that, God sent his prophet Isaiah to speak to them. Why? Well, to deliver them out of it. And what's the message? Here it is, I told you at the beginning. Repent. Recognize what you're doing. See the utter folly of it all. The arrogance, the enormity of it all. Repent oh. Hasten to God and acknowledge it and confess it. Fall at his feet. Ask him, is it still possible that you can pardon me? Is it still possible that you can receive me? And he'll say to you, yes. I loved you even when you didn't know it. I loved you even when you were walking away from me. I loved you even when you spurned me and ridiculed me and despised me and my name and my laws and my home and all I meant for you. I loved you with an everlasting love in spite of it all. I sent my son to die for you, to bear your punishment. Believe in him and I'll receive you back. And I'll take off your filthy rags of you and I'll wash you. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. I've got a new robe for you. I'm going to give you the robe of mine own son. It's a spotless robe of righteousness. I'm going to give you a prominent position in the family. We'll have a great feast. And the angels of heaven are tuning their harps. They're ready to sing at the return of one such as yourself. Thank God that though we all have sunk so low as the result of man's original sin and our own personal sin, that we are a sinful nation, that we are laden with iniquity, that we are a seed of evildoers and corrupters and corrupt and vile and foul, If we acknowledge it and repent and believe, On the name of the only begotten Son of God, crucified for us, body broken, blood shed. The past shall be forgotten, a present joy be given, a future grace be promised, a glorious crown. In heaven, have you seen it? Well, tell him. Amen.